0: In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions Bye. 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 Okay, so as always, when I start these podcasts, we always have these amazing conversations that have to abruptly end so that we can hit record and we can start talking about it. So uh, we got Bridget on again for our monthly podcast and I asked her, you know, quickly at the beginning, you know, how she was feeling now being back at work because visually I seen that she was back in the office. I'm used to her being at home and we started walking through some of the procedures that, you know, she's implementing at her office and why it's so hard for her to be able to see as many patients as she was seeing before and then getting into like the impacts, obviously, it was going to have on her physically, mentally, and emotionally, um, but also financially as well. So, um, you know, for one, welcome back to the show, Bridget. Really appreciate yeah. you coming on. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, now, like i said, you you officially went back on June second. Tomorrow yep. would be a month since you've been back. First couple weeks were pretty taxing. You know, now you've had a little bit of time to be able to get back into what a kind of new routine is. You know, walk us through from. You know back at the office, I know on our last podcast, I think we briefly kind of talked about you know what it was like or what it was going to be like when you went back. but what's it been like the last month, and how taxing is it on you, and what are the the protocols that you've self implemented right because you're the only person in your in your office
1: right. I'm the only person in my office which makes things easier and harder uh, yeah. so um there are a lot of guidelines that have been laid out that we have to do so i'm doing those and i think the only thing that i'm doing extra is that i'm actually cleaning the floor in between patients as opposed to at the end of the day Mm
2: -hmm.
1: so because it doesn't make sense to me to just do it at the end of the day i mean if you're really trying to prevent you know droplet exposure then you should it it just makes sense to me to to do that entirely so And I have a lot of people that are in at-risk groups that come in. So I want to make sure that they feel safe coming in here and that I am indeed providing the safest space possible for them to be in. Mm -hmm. So when people come to the office now, we both have masks on. Um, I don't have my mask on today because I'm not seeing clients, but um, they wear their mask throughout the treatment and um, they come to the front door, which I have open. So it's at this time of year, it's perfect because I can leave the front door open and I have a window open behind the blinds in the treatment room. Mm. And I have a HEPA filter in the treatment room and I have a fan, a ceiling fan in the treatment room. So there's always circulating air in the room and in the lobby and in between clients, I have the door to the treatment room open. So there's like a cross breeze between the front door and the window in the treatment room. And then um when people Is that f- one
0: of the requirements is to have like like air flow or cross flow or um well, like
1: air- it's 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 not a requirement yet, but Governor Cuomo is um he's becoming more uh well versed with indoor air quality. I think he's probably got people he's talking to that specialize in that. And so in his briefings, um, he's been talking to New Yorkers about the importance of having a HEPA filtration system on their, uh, right now on their air conditioning units and in the winter, it's probably gonna be on their furnace. Um, And I was, one of my clients has a, a son who just graduated with a degree in chemical engineering and he spent the last year studying indoor air quality. And of course, one of the main topics of focus at, toward the end of his education was on coronavirus. And um, they from his perspective, uh, as a scientist who was specializing in that, you have to have a fresh air source, and you have to have an adequate HEPA filtration system in the room that you're seeing people in and his mom's a psychotherapist so she's closed in a small office where mm-hmm. um she can't open the window so she's trying to figure out how she can safely let her clients know that 100 percent this is what you know the standard for healthy you know uh indoor spaces is is being met so um so given that information you know i, I Was able to do that in the space that I'm in. I can open my door, I can open the window. I already had the HEPA filter. I'll get more HEPA filters for the winter and I'll probably get a UV light as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But when people come to the door, I have to go out and take their temperature and then I have to document it. And then they have to, there's a COVID waiver they have to sign. Um, Otherwise, malpractice doesn't cover us. So Um, they, they have to initial and sign this waiver. Then they come in and they go to the bathroom and wash their hands. Then they come back in and take their shoes off. Then they go in the treatment room and the mask is left on. Um, and then, you know, we're able to somewhat proceed as usual, except there's like nothing in the treatment room. there's no knickknacks or anything like that. Everything is stark and uh because all the surfaces need to be clear to be wiped down easily and there's no rug on the floor i mean that's stuff i was already implementing when this first started to happen but now the government or the acupuncture association of new york is saying this is what we have to do and so um
0: how much extra time does that all take like you know from when somebody comes in like how much time do you have to allocate for you know taking their temperature them coming in you know them Filling out the waiver form, like, well, them washing their hands and like, coming back, taking their shoes off, like, just all of these different things. Like, what's well, different?
1: it's a few extra minutes, and if it's the first time somebody's been back, their brain has to process what's happening and seeing me for the first time again with a mask and walking in and seeing they can't just sit in the lo- in most of the lobby chairs. Like, there's only one chair that they can sit in, and then they have to go through, and then they're worried about touching the doorknobs and. So, you know, that it takes a few minutes for the brain to acclimate, right? And then I'm, I'm oftentimes like reassuring people to let them know it's okay. You know, you're not going to do anything wrong in the protocol. It's no big deal. I've got it covered, you know, and, and, um, and then just getting into catching up and stuff like that. It takes a while um, because there's a lot more now to talk about. Um, And then. After they leave, it takes me, if I'm really hustling, it takes me like 15, maybe 20 minutes to go through and clean everything. So I am completely changing over the table. There's no sheets anymore. I have a a picnic tablecloth, a vinyl picnic tablecloth on my (laughs) massage table so I don't ruin the vinyl on the table with all the bleach and all the products I'm using on it. Yeah. And so um, so I've got to spray that down, spray, I sp- spray the headrest down. The headrest is a very uh, complicated piece of <laughs> equipment that has all kinds of nooks and crannies. So I spray the inside of all that down. And I have tons of paper products that I'm using, like totally t- tables covered in paper after I clean it off. The headrest has two layers of disposable um, headrest covers on it um, the chair that they sat in or put their purse on, it's got paper all over it. Um, so I'm like sterilizing the floor, sterilizing all the counters, the, um, even the, like the hand sanitizer pumps need to be sterilized, all the doorknobs, the doorknobs leading to and from the bathroom, the bathroom itself. Um, I clean the faucet, the I am literally
2: like, exhausted literally. I know
1: the handrail <laughs> next to the toilet then somebody came in the other day and she's like she came up the stairs I've got a few stairs like I, I just kind of assumed nobody would touch anything so she comes up the stairs she's like she's sterilized are you sterilizing the handrails out here and I'm like <laughs>
0: oh my god
1: now i'm gonna go sterilize the handrails because the sun beats down on them most of the day so they are uv protected and aside from people coming in and out of my office there aren't that many but yeah. you know people need to feel safe and some people do need to hang on to the railing. so
0: and your insurance uh, like you said you know if they're gonna poke any holes if they find that handrail that somebody brought to your attention that you didn't <laughs> then start to sterilize you know then oh my gosh like it is just, it's, it's overwhelming listening to you talk. About it. Like,
1: and then I, I'm wiping down the pens after they fill out the COVID form and the clipboard that they held. And it, you know what I mean? It's like, and then I think of something and then I, it's just, it, it's endless. It, it's a lot. It's a lot for, like, it doesn't sound like a lot. It just sounds stupid. Like, oh, so what, you gotta wipe stuff down, right? but it's not. It's like, and you're breathing through a mask the whole time. Right. And it's worn properly. (laughs) So that makes it even harder. And my glasses are fogging up and, um, it's a lot, it is a lot mentally and emotionally. And, um, everyone is taxed and so, you know, everyone's got, whether it's financial or it's family or it's whatever it is, um, or the aches or pains they haven't been able to deal with, or they haven't been able to go to the gym and they don't have anything at their house to use, it's like everybody's either in some kind of physical, mental, or, or emotional pain, strain, or tension that's above and beyond, you know, what they were already experiencing before they before COVID-19 happened. So there's all of that. And um, so basically... Like I was telling you before we started, I've gone from seeing like eight to ten people a day with two treatment rooms and a part-time girl helping me in the lobby to um, two to three people a day with one treatment room and me doing everything myself. Um, I don't want to bring another person in here because I I can vouch for myself. You know, I can be responsible for myself but I can't be responsible for someone else and what they're doing outside of the clinic. So I can't, with a good conscience, bring another person in here. And when I'm not supposed to be cross-contaminating or exposing clients to anybody really, that's why I'm not using the two rooms. Now I could use the two rooms. If I was younger and more spry, or I had a bigger office with a separate lobby or office area where I could have a receptionist that was, easily six foot away from someone else, I would actually make it bigger than six feet. Um, then then I would I would probably be using the two rooms, but that's not, this whole thing has helped me to really um, re- reevaluate like the way I want to be working. And I was already knowing the way I wanted to be working, but not able to do it. And this has been an, an opportunity in a sense, the silver lining is that I am able to now just see one person a day. And, you know, people aren't as upset if I can't fit them in because they understand why I'm not running two rooms at the same time. And I'm not working really long days because I just can't with all the cleaning. I can't. Yeah. So that's, that's it in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> Which, like I said, it is exhausting listening to you talk about it because it, like, you know, when, when you say all that, like, it'd be different if you're doing that once a day, but arguably, you're probably doing it about four times a day yes. on average, yes. right? You know, yeah. and like, and you know, even if you're working five days a week, doing that 20 times a week, you know, that means that you've done that like 80 times since the last time I talked to you. And right. that's just the stuff that you're doing at the office. That's right. never mind the stuff you're doing at home or right? right. other areas of your life. Uh, yeah. A couple of questions that, that, that come up. Have you calculated out like the, the financial cost? Like, obviously, the laundry cost of you. Uh, with all the extra, laundry you might be doing the cleaning products, the paper products, the masks, the like, right. and gels, like all that. Like, is it a big financial? Commitment?
1: Well, I'm not spending as much on needles right now. Mm-hmm. So the cost of the pa- disposable paper products, the masks, the gloves, the sanitizer has canceled out any benefit to that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm spending about the same amount, or maybe even a little bit more, I haven't sat down and done it, but it's around the same like I'm ordering around the same amount of stuff a week yeah. um, because of that and and like if if gloves in size medium happen to pop up on my distributor's site, I have to get them while I can because they'll be gone like that, yeah. so I, I'm ordering extra of things, and I'm usually they're scrambling in their facilities as well. So I usually end up with large gloves that are falling off my hands. Mm. Um, but uh, as far as like the, I, I haven't calculated it yet, but I was just to give you an idea, I was seeing eight to 10 people a day at $95 a session, except for people that um, had packages or for yep. whatever reason were getting a discount. Um, and then, um, now i'm seeing two or three people a day so i raised the price to 125 which really i should have been charging anyway um but it, it, and i've also implemented an extra software system so now i have software that is sending out more reminders you're supposed to call two days ahead and, and email one day ahead to make sure no one has symptoms so um, it's sending out email reminders, it's an online scheduler, and it's a biller that people can put their credit card information in. So that way there's contactless checkout. Yeah. So um, so that's another thing. And uh, so um, I almost but forgot. But
0: just tough to be able to absorb the extra cost though, right? Because if oh, you're cost, like, you know, eight to 10 people a day, you know, not even like charging like, you know, $95 per hour, whether you're seeing two or three at 125, like you still have a lease to pay. Like you still have like hydro, you still have, you know, security costs and insurance and all that kind of stuff. And like, to me, like, you know, charging an extra $20, you know, per person, you know, if you're seeing only two or three people that there's there's no way that that seems sustainable sustainable to me in the long term. Like it just kind of seems like you're scratching the surface of just floating the ship, even if that.
1: Yeah. So either I need to find a much smaller space with a much lower rent or i need to bring in another acupuncturist Um, the other thing is that i'm i've kind of rekindled my um my time and energy that i put into doing energy work not just in acupuncture so i started doing more distance energy healing sessions and that's a nice fill-in. So maybe a fourth client a day can be a distance energy healing session, mm-hmm. um, and that way I'm not cleaning up after them, right? So mm-hmm. it's like it's still an hour or so. Um, it's I, I'm very much invested in the entire hour with the person that I'm working with, but there's not that cleanup afterwards. Yeah. So that's been helpful. It's not. It's it's not you know gonna be the panacea. I'm definitely going to have to reevaluate either how I work in the space or move to a different space. Uh, The other thing is, you know, I'm I'm kind of leaving my options open because when the book comes out in September, um, it is quite timely and it's an area of interest, as we're going to talk about in a bit, um, the microbiome. um, So that, you know, there might be things that arise from that speaking engagements more you know, online courses that I can do and things like that. So, I'm not kind of putting all my eggs in the in the face-to-face clinical acupuncture basket. Um, mm-hmm. As far as how my business progresses into the future, I'm um, thinking that it there there may be an opportunity here for me to shift more to an online platform and reduce my overhead and and not maybe not even have a physical clinic at some point.
0: Yeah. How does it feel, though, like, like spending all these years, like working your butt off, you know, like, you know, fine tuning who you are, your knowledge, your education, your client base, you know, like building this business, you know, and, and putting all this time and effort and energy into it. And then now, like, it, it is what it is today, like it, like, are you happy with this transition? Like you said, it's kind of, you know, you obviously are finding this silver lining in it, like you can see that there can be this benefit past it. Um, but is it hard, like at all looking back at and just like all this time and effort and energy you put into building this thing. And then now it just kind of is this thing where you have to make this lateral shift to be able to make it all
2: work now.
1: Um, if I was planning to continue to just exist within the model that I now am in, I would be considering getting out of the business, honestly, because it's just, it's not sustainable, mm. but since I'm flexible with what I can do, since I have, um, other skill sets and, and other options that I think are going to open up in the next few months, I'm not, I'm not very concerned about it. I, in a sense, it's almost a relief to be able to kind of let go and, and see what happens and mm. have, you know, faith and trust in in nature and in the universe and in Dharma, mm. um, In a way, that's, you know, a lesson for me because I'm pretty much somebody who has always, you know, decided what it is I'm going to do next and then I do it. And this time I'm like, I've really had to like fall backwards into the abyss and just trust that things are going to unfold for the best. And I'm still doing that to a large extent. Like people are asking me, how are you with this new normal? And I'm like, this isn't my new normal. I'm still in limbo. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: That's actually a great way of putting it. And, you know, like the, the way that I explain it to people, you know, too, is that it's hard to have like, like direction in your life when, when things are like, they're so dynamic, you know, like you, you just don't, and like we say that everybody's kind of like in this limbo state of like, well, what can I do? And like, what's the face it? like, you don't want to make a concrete plan because you don't know if those plans can be executed in a day, a week, a month or a year. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like if, if people get locked down again, if they don't, you know, like if, businesses are forced to close again or they don't like all these different things. You know, so like what I say is, you know, I know where I want to go in my life. Like I, I see it. I, I clearly feel that I'm connected with it, but in today's landscape it's really hard to know how to be able to get there and you can mount a lot of frustration trying to figure that out. So I wake up in the morning, I draw my sail, I cast it into the wind and I just let it go. You know, just like what you said, you know, where you want to trust that, you want to do good. You have this goal. You want to work towards it. Like this is what you want. And you're just going to put your best foot forward and and try not to stress about it because
2: at the end of the day,
0: there's just this out, out of all times. in our lives, there's so much out of our control right now of being a goal driven, like entrepreneur of like any kind of somebody wanting to achieve things. How do you coach somebody in an environment like this to be successful saying like, stay true to your goals, but don't make a real plan. And be okay with that. <laughs> this- but you know
1: what? I know. And, but that's, like, if we take a step back from that even and we look at it, I mean, that's really always the way it is, right? Yeah. We're just not conscious of that part of it.
2: Mm-hmm. We
1: just go on with our will-driven aspect. We're not, we're not so focused on the unknown because we're, we're not, it's not, like, in our face 24-7 like it is now. It's like but- a whole shift.
0: Yeah. And you know, and it's like, you know, anybody who has any kind of business where you have like this, this business plan, you have this idea. And then once you actually take that step into real life, you realize you have to revamp that all the time and it's constantly mobile. And like, you know, very rarely do you ever stick with the original business plan. Now we're just kind of forced to start yeah. off that way and be comfortable with that, you know, and just find these different lateral moves to be able to make, to continue down the path that we want to go down. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So, um, back to kind of like what we talked about at the beginning. So we're going to make a huge 180 degree shift here, but, um, you segued us into it a little bit as saying that, you know, you obviously have this new book coming out. We've talked about it. I want to go from basically the farm to the table, to the mouth, you know, to the gut, to the body, you know? So like, obviously like we know, you know, like from an agricultural standpoint, you know now I think is a little bit more prevalent than any time where it's really in our face now, where we're gonna have to make some serious decisions of what commercial, big industrial farming looks like. You know whether that you know be from a, a vegan perspective or whether that be from like huge cattle farms or you know anything in between. Yeah, you know, I think this is really gonna put us in a position where we're gonna say, okay, well, what does local really mean to me because in like what does my garden really mean to me where's my space how can i have better control over the food that i have because you know between avian flu and swine flu mad cow disease you know potential you know bat related problems like we have all these things that are starting to become a little bit more prevalent all the time and obviously affect us on a global scale you know like where do you what's your opinion like where do you see do you think we're going to change anything to like with our food sources and supply chains you know, to be able to help create a a more positive, healthy environment at the very base of all this, which is just our food?
1: I think that there are a lot of people who are already moving in that direction and and, in their local communities, you know, throughout not just the United States or Canada, but throughout the world, um, because they recognize the importance of supporting local farmers financially, but also for the health reasons eating foods that are locally grown and that are you know not treated and not you know overly sanitized and are not trucked in from somewhere else so i think that that already started to happen but i think as there's more of a movement i mean as we move out of the divisiveness of the issues that the coronavirus has brought up and we move into more people having um a greater voice in social media as to you know what we can do to strengthen our immunity for example um as a whole as a as a species on this planet that that is going to become a very important topic of discussion uh the food piece i mean we already know that the antibiotics that are being fed, for example, to factory farmed animals have an impact physiologically, not just on the animals and their offspring, but on us because those things are present in the product that we end up consuming, but they also end up in the groundwater and they also end up, you know, in in plants that, you know, we don't even know all the ramifications of it. But what we do know, from like on a micro level, just with the studies on the micro, the human gut microbiome, for example, are that my, that antibiotics do, especially the more uh, the stronger, uh, wider spectrum antibiotics that kill more species, that they do annihilate species and like many different species in people's guts and that all it can take sometimes for a person is one course of antibiotics to completely change their microbiome potentially for the next six months to two years but but also potentially it could be for the rest of their life um depending upon what the resilience of their diversity was to begin with
0: so um i'm just gonna hop in there real quick for one second because i never thought of this before until you said it and i don't I've never heard a narrative around it and that probably most people are unaware and I only know this because I'm a farmer at heart, but so when you take the antibiotics that are in that we feed like these or that we inject these animals with, so say specifically cows and in Canada we're actually not allowed to do it, it's illegal now to be able to give like, you know, cows like antibiotics happened a few years ago. So all of our beef should be antibiotic free. However, before in Obviously, there's other animals too, but before that, like farmers would take, um, you know, kind of like the, the waste products from these cows, you know, and make the manure, and they would mix it in these liquid concentrations, and you'd spray it all over the fields, like that are growing all the, the wheat, the barley, the corn, right. the potatoes, and all that kind of stuff. And nutrients back to the soil. Well, arguably, there would be a lot of antibiotics and, you know, prices up. In those waste products from these animals that you're spraying all over the plants to be able to give them nutrients. I never even thought about how much of an impact that would have had, you know, even for people who are like vegan, vegetarian, or the amount of antibiotics that ended up in our plant based products because of how we decide to fertilize our land because right. we've robbed it of so much natural nutrients growing these huge crops.
1: Well, and how it changes the microbiome of the soil as well. Mm-hmm. right so if you're giving antibiotics then you're develop you're in essence um unintentionally developing more antibiotic resistant strains potentially of pathogenic microbes
0: yeah so isn't that scary because you know like you said we have it in the meat that we ingest we have it in the plant based products that we have ingest we have it in the water that we ingest you know all because we did we have these big massive farms with all of these like animals you know on them where we need to give them antibiotics to be able to keep them healthy and that cycle you just see how devastating that cycle has been because i know when i got my antibiotics levels tested and they were so high and i'm like i haven't taken antibiotics for 20 years and it was alarming to me like how high my antibiotics were and i annoyed everybody in my life for probably two weeks because like i was was mortified like i like i couldn't even like i wanted to believe that i didn't get sick because i'm like I work out and you know I stay healthy I do all these preventive measures I'm like I might have been not getting like the the seasonal flu or anything like that for all these years because I was just I was micro dosing myself with antibiotics for years it's crazy to me
1: right. well there are also microbes in the gut that produce antibiotic substances or yeah antimicrobial substances so um Okay. I don't know how much of that gets measured in that test that you did. Did you do a follow-up test to that?
0: Yeah, I did. And they lowered and it actually turned out to be the chicken that I was eating. Well, I, I, I assume that chicken. it was the chicken that okay. I, I was eating because they went down after that. Um, but still, there's there's a base level of antibodies in my system. But I never thought of that being um, a potential avenue. So I'm going to latch on to that and say that uh, for some comfort in my own mind is saying that that's what it is, but um, yeah, I definitely know like sense. through this conversation kind of opens up my eyes some of the other places that I might be getting antibiotics in my system that I wasn't even
2: aware of before.
0: Yeah, so let's hop in. So now we have this with this food we've made we've got it in our table. A lot of people like now and like I think we've talked about this before, and it's something that I, I try to really bring people around is we're always in such a rush to eat now. So like not only do we overconsume food, you know, because this this food is addictive, it has addictive properties. You know, like we want to be able to consume more, we gorge ourselves on it. But when we eat fast, we end up eating more than what we should, instead of just slowing it down. But never mind that we're not chewing our food properly. Um, you know, we're not allowing like proper digestion. Like, what is some of the impact that it has on just, like not even just chewing your food properly? Because obviously, there's a lot of enzymes in our saliva through mastication, we're helping break some of that food down while it's still in our mouth. But if we kind of skip that step, like how important is the step of like, you know, adding that saliva and that, that breaking down process like in our mouth and just chewing their food up properly.
1: So I talk about this um, topic quite a lot in the book and, and there's a section dedicated to it in that digestion actually begins in the mind. Oh, so the state of mind that we're in when we sit down to eat something is going to affect how we metabolize whatever it is that we eat, regardless of how healthy it is or how healthy we think it is for us. So, um, so if we're angry or anxious or fearful and we eat something, it's not going to digest as well as if we've taken the time to sit and relax and be for a moment and center, and then eat and be present. So a lot of like what you mentioned with the fast eating, just to hurry up and get it in. That is an aspect of that is not being present in the moment, right? Because we're already we're already in the future if we're just you know we're just scrambling to get to the next thing, mm. and um, and that definitely affects the metabolism. Um, There have been studies done, recently there was a study done that measured how people metabolize food given whether they're shaming themselves during or after they eat it. So eating disorders to varying degrees are are incredibly common, and especially in the United States. I'm sure it's not much different for people um, all over the world. Um, whether it's under eating, overeating, or um, dysmorphia related to eating. So um, if someone is eating something and they are guilting or shaming themselves about it, or if they guilt or shame themselves about it afterwards, they do not metabolize it as well. If two people eat a McDonald's hamburger and one person is like, oh my God, this is amazing and they're fine with it. And the other person is like, oh, I wish I didn't do that. The person, person B is going to not break it down and assimilate the nutrients as well as person A. Oh, wow. So that's something to think about. So a lot of how we process things physically begins with the mind and the the way that even we process thoughts and emotions it's kind of flipped like the way we process things physically begins with the mind and the thoughts and emotions we process also involve the energy of the body it's not just mental so one of the main things is that we become present so um It's perhaps like a way that like people that say grace before they eat, it may be that like thousands of years ago, even before there was an organized religion, there was this awareness that there needed to be this space of opening and allowing and accepting that comes in mentally and emotionally before we consume what we're eating and gratitude that enables one to better Process and assimilate what they're taking in.
0: Yeah, because you know, like even when you look at from like that that concept right there is that we like people would have respected food. I assume a lot more like a thousand years ago, five hundred years ago, two hundred fifty years ago than what we do now because like it's nothing for people to throw food away. Like in in Canada, well, okay, in Langley, I know specifically in Vancouver area, we have food waste bins they're huge they're the same size as our garbage can they're specifically for food waste and like yard trimmings but like you know everybody has their little compostable food waste bag you know and like you you take it and you throw it out but and obviously there's some waste you know coffee grounds eggshells and all that kind of stuff but if we all looked at like how much food we actually throw away there's no way that we respect food now to the degree that what we should or to the to the amount of people who would have respected food back then just because food scarcity was a real issue. You know, then you couple that. Okay, well, if we don't respect our food, but we don't even respect our meal times or eating and being present during that time, because I think of three things, you know, like people watching TV while they eat super common people playing on their phones while they eat super common people driving while they eat super common, you know, like all of these things that, you know, like disassociate us from the moment, But we also had all these moments before while we ate where it used to be a big social gathering which pulled you into that moment and food became a part of the social gathering and you were happy and people were laughing and you know like you know maybe dancing like you know everybody kind of probably thinks of like you know big Italian family dinners you know where people are having a great time and like they're eating like like that's that that component that we're really missing now because we we try to inject all these other things into our eating times too. Because very rarely do people sit around a a kitchen table now or dining room table and just eat. And if they do, are they actually having fun doing that or hating each other because they're being forced to sit down and have like this family time or personal time with other people and all they want to do is get on their phone or get on the TV or, you know, go do something else and not thinking about being present in that moment.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Um, It's a a huge thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So like, you know, with, with the impacts there, like, obviously we see like kind of like the trickle down effect, like, you know, and losing that connection, like with our food, let's get into the chewing part and like, you know, mastication, like, because what happens when we don't chew our food enough and we just kind of swallow and it's, it's whole, like, how hard is that on the digestive system where we don't take that time to break that food down properly at the point of entry, you know, like what we should. Okay.
1: So when we, taste our food, and actually like are with it and tasting it, our body is reacting to it. In fact, our body is reacting to food the moment we think about it. If you think about taking a bite out of a juicy lemon, Mm -hmm. you start to salivate, right? Yeah body knows and so when we think about food and then when we are preparing it and we smell food there are chemical reactions that are already occurring in the body the body's hydrochloric acid and the stomach is getting ready and the the enzymes the pancreas is come into action and and perhaps the gallbladder is already like on alert and you know these Whatever enzymes need to be manufactured to digest whatever you're thinking about or whatever you're preparing, your body is sensing that that's coming and it's preparing for that before we even ingest it. So there's that piece, again, uh, having to do with how digestion begins with our minds and our senses. And then the other piece is that once you actually put food in your mouth and taste it, that the taste will activate specific functions in the body that either bring your um, constitutional factors more into or more out of balance. So taste has a huge role to play in how well your body functions. And being able to actually taste something and connect with the taste has even a more profound effect, I feel. Mm -hmm. And when we chew our food, We're giving our body the time to really get to know what's in the mouth. The mouth and the stomach are like the gateway to the rest of the digestive tract, but also to the rest of the bodily tissues. Mm -hmm. And so they're sort of the guard dogs for what's coming in. And they are already telling the rest of the body, you know, whether it's friend or foe, whether it's going to nourish us or be something that is, you know, kind of heavier to us or, or detrimental to us in some way. So, um, you know, like if you've ever gotten sick, if you've ever gotten food poisoning, you kind of know what it was that did it, right? So that's why, because your, your body does know. And so um, it's very important to chew the food because you're breaking it down, you're increasing the surface area of it so that once it gets into the stomach, the stomach can do its job. The acids in the stomach can further break things down. They don't have to go through those plant cell walls like that aren't already kind of mashed. And uh, think about like a mortar and pestle, how that increases the surface area when you're mashing something up and that's the same thing in the mouth, that the teeth are increasing the surface area of the contents of what you're eating so that when it gets into those more delicate areas of the body, the internal uh, part of the body, then the the juices and enzymes and acids can do their work to more efficiently Get at the nutrients and pull them out and distribute them to the other tissues in the body, and to and, and then send forward and down and out anything that is not um, of nutritional value. So um, so it's very important to chew properly. And then if there's any. If there's any um, imbalance in like the transit in the gut, for example, if things tend to move through you more quickly, if you have more of a hyper metabolism like a pizza type might have, then if you're not chewing things pro- properly, then they're probably not going to spend enough time in your body for your body to actually break them down all the way. So you might see undigested food particles in the toilet when you go to the bathroom because you didn't chew it properly to begin with. That can be one of the, the problems. And if if the Agni or the Digestifier, if any aspect of your digestion, of your metabolism is not in balance, then not chewing your food properly is just going to be one more thing that you add to that, um, to that imbalance. So, Does that make sense?
2: Yeah,
0: absolutely. It totally makes sense. Um, I have a, a few questions. I don't, I don't want you to wait. One of them is, you know, like knowing all this and like in relationship to like stomach acid and, you know, breaking the food down, let's, let's presume that, yeah, you know, somebody like chewed it properly, you know, has hit the digestive system or the, the gut and, you know, like the stomach acid is breaking it down, but now they've taken a big drink of milk or water or beer or wine or juice. What do you, what's your opinion on drinking fluids, you know, say, maybe 10, 20 minutes before, during, 10, 20 minutes after. Like when do you think like liquids uh, should be introduced, you know, into the system? Does it matter? Does it not matter?
1: Well, I think that if, um, so basically the idea is that the stomach is one third solid food, one third fluids, and one third air. That's the the general recipe for optimal combustion. So mm-hmm. If there, if you're eating, if you're eating soup, then the necessity of drinking fluids is not necessarily there. If you're eating something that's drier, and um, you might and you're not salivating enough, you might need the fluid a little bit. I think sipping on fluids while you eat, sipping on tea or some other um, kind of uh, thing that stimulates the digestion before or after you eat is fine or even wine or whatever it is, but guzzling water 20 minutes before you eat or guzzling it you know, 20 minutes after you eat is, is going to dilute things and it gives your body a little extra work, especially if it's iced. If it's something that's cold, studies have shown that it actually slows down the enzymatic activity in the small intestine. So you're actually adding um, something to the system that's impinging your body's ability to efficiently break down and absorb the nutrients you need.
0: Yeah, and you know, and that kind of goes back because when I was young, and I, I'm pretty sure a lot of people are in this category too, like you're always told that you kind of almost like had to have something like it was, it was always offered like, do you want some milk? Do you want some water? Like, It it seems like you were coached that drinking something, you know, not necessarily sipping off, but like drinking something was a part of the eating experience.
2: Right.
0: I really tried to break that in myself the last like year or so because you know, and this is where I want a little bit of fine tuning. Like, how much does if I had a like a cup of like just a cup of water, one cup, and I drank that while I was eating, like a three ounce piece of steak, for example or any food, like how much would that actually dilute the stomach acid? Or is that a concept that doesn't have a lot of validity to it, that that water or that milk or the juice is going to actually dilute the stomach acid um, and make it harder for the body to digest the food? Or is it strictly just, you know, with drinking colder products, how that just kind of slows the metabolism down, the enzymatic activity Is that the part that's harder on the system?
1: Well, so what happens when you eat something is that your body um, is going to try to send through the stuff that's easier to break down before the stuff that's harder to break down. So if you ate a steak and you drank a cup of water, the water would, your body would try to get the water to slide in front of the steak and go into your small intestine faster than the steak could leave the stomach. Mm. Would that take some of the acids with it that could have been held back for the steak to be broken down? Probably. The real answer is it depends on the person, right? It depends on the balance. If someone has a good balance and a good healthy production of stomach acid is a cup of water with their steak every now and then going to make that big a deal. Probably not. The, the proof is going to be in the pudding if they feel like they've got a rock in their stomach, you know, two hours later or, or three hours later because it's going into the small intestine and it's just, the juices just aren't there to eat away at it. Well, then that gives you your answer that you shouldn't be probably either eating so much steak all at once or that you shouldn't be having all that fluid to go with it. But generally speaking, fluid is going to go around it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. I don't know if they've done really specific studies on exactly how much you know fluid it would take in the average person's stomach to dilute the acids enough to inhibit the breakdown of other foods. Mm-hmm. Um, that I'm not I'm not, I don't know about, but um, from an Eastern medicine standpoint, we're definitely just supposed to sip sip on fluids and only have one third fluid. So say you drink like a cup of water that's this big and you have a bunch of food that's the same amount. So that's like the entire contents of your stomach and there's no room for the air. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's more like try to think about, it's um in in ayurveda we say third a third a third um in in like the japanese tradition they say 80 20 so it's like 80% food and fluids and 20% air whatever you know just having that concept that there actually needs to be space in there too is important
0: yeah so like the the couple of things that like come to mind with that um i i guess for one like the most the most up- <laughs> prevalent question I have is that, can you outline how big an average stomach is? Because if you're thinking a third, a third, a third, it's relevant to how big the average stomach cavity is in correlation to food. Because when, that's one thing that people always ask all the time. You know, I think they like the vast majority of people have asked the question, well, how much should I eat? Okay. So, you know, yeah. but like, you yeah, we always could correlate that with like calories and, you know, like Um, like, you know, protein, fats, and carbohydrates. But obviously, a lot of that has to do with, like, overall quantity, too. So, yeah, time it.
1: Right. All right. So, in the absence of an eating disorder such as anorexia that would shrink your stomach to the point that you're going to feel full if you have a drop of water uh, or a mouthful of something, um, in the absence of that, then... It goes back to what you were saying about how fast you eat. Because if you're eating at a moderate pace, then you're able to get the cue that the brain sends to the stomach that you've had enough or that the stomach sends to the brain and it tells you, okay, I'm getting full. And that's when you're supposed to stop,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right? We're not supposed to eat all the food on the plate. And sometimes... You know, maybe our digestive capacity is going to be a little bit weaker. And sometimes it's going to be a little bit stronger. So sometimes you can have a little bit more. Sometimes you can have a little bit less. But you would get to know if you have a balanced relationship with food and a balanced Agni or digestive fire. If you're not having a lot of digestive complaints, then you would know what feels right to you and how much you need.
0: And again, I think that comes back a lot to like being present when you eat you know, and not being distracted because it'd be very easy to be able to miss a very subtle cue like that. You know, The difference of like the, your, your body and your mind, you're kind of telling, okay, well, this is enough because, again, you alluded to a really key factor is that we were, we've always been told that you have to finish what's on your plate. You know, and just because it's on your plate, that, that's the assumption of that's the amount of food that you should eat. But we also know there's a lot of people trying to break that message now and say, okay, well, you know, maybe it's just like snacking on a few little things. Because I know like separate time at, at my house, like the way that we eat, you know, it's about a kind of an hour long process of like, you know, you have like, you know, some fruits and veggies at the beginning, you know, get the micronutrients, I mean, you know, get some good like healthy quality nutrients in the body. And then it's just, like, you know, take a little bit of a break. And then you kind of just, it's like a massaging process of like, you know, refeeding the body. It's not just sit down and eat like this whole plate of food is like a little bit mm-hmm. of like a grazing period uh, per se because um, I just feel like it is easier to get everybody to eat that way um, yeah. and it just is a lot more comfor- comfortable on the body and then you go through those little subtle stages of you know like you know listening to the body and feeling okay well you're like I have ate enough you know like I don't need to gorge but you know we always push the excess like the, the excess amount of food were like that stuffed feeling like like we try to achieve stuffed, not full, not subtly full, not, not comfortably full. It's, it's stuffed. Like people chase that feeling. And again, that's like, again, like our disillusion with food and not respecting food where like we gorge on it to that extent, you know, Mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to achieve maximum capacity. There, there is no room for anything else except for maybe that piece of pie that I just have that little special spot for. Like we've heard all this terminology over time but like, just think of like the disrespect we're offering our digestive system. You know, on the way when the body's trying to send all these signals and we're overriding all these signals because we just don't want to be present while we're eating.
1: There's a there's a yogic there's a yogic saying that we should eat to live, not live to eat. Mm-hmm. If you're yeah. living to eat, then you're then there's an imbalance in in the in the mental body somewhere. Yeah, mental body.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned something before too that um, that I just wanted you to bring up. It seems like that when it comes to like the fluid consumption and you know and eating, just eating in general, that again it's just listening to ourselves. If you end up having like that uncomfortable feeling in your stomach or that rock in your stomach, and you know just taking that and learning from that going forward, which is also something that we seem to have a very tough time doing, is listening to how our body felt in the past when we're eating things, but we'll consume it again even though we i know i'll feel like shit if i eat this you know and like people will continue to do that that anyway and we just don't really seem like we take away the value of the information that we could be taking away from listening to our bodies every day
1: and i think this is the value in having um an established relationship with a practitioner who can who can help you to recognize how to listen to your body because Most people we're so, it's like, it's, we're in, we're obviously in our body, right? But it's like such a foreign concept to actually listen to what the subtle impressions of the body are saying. Not like you finally have to listen once you put your back out or whatever it is. It's more like, what are those subtle cues you're getting from your body? What are those messages you're getting intuitively about food or whatever it is? What, you know, we need to take that stuff more seriously because it's important and it's it's um being embodied is is what we need to do in order to be healthy Mm -hmm. it's when we're out of when we're more in our heads and not listening to what the body is telling us that we tend to get in trouble
2: Mm -hmm.
0: so that brings me into, into like a point too, where I, I know a lot of people who fall into this category, and I think it's kind of like the final stage of like what well, we've been talking about, where we don't allow enough time after we eat for proper digestion and processing. You know, where it's just like I'm gonna eat real quick and go. You know, I'm going like yeah. I'm driving in the car. I gotta eat real quick, and then I gotta get into this meeting. You know, like okay, yeah. grab a grab a, grab a sandwich, put it in because you have soccer practice right now, yeah. and you're. You know they picked you up from school you know, i've got your snack in the car and you like all of these kind of things where it's just why are we hurrying and we rushing the, we're trying to cram it all in but then we just immediately go do something most of the time right after you know, like how does that impact so we have this food in our stomach now say we've chewed it properly you know like we've coated it in saliva we've had adequate hydration everything's perfect But then we just don't allow enough time, like, you know, like post eating for proper digestion, like, how long should we wait? You know, like, obviously, it's probably food specific and, you know, like time specific and things like that, too. But like, what's the importance of like waiting long enough after you've ate for proper digestion?
1: How long would it be to to sit and have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea as a digestive aid or a glass of wine after you eat? Like, how long would that take? Not to sit there and be like, you yeah. know, but to sit there and I would say that's probably about the length of time—twenty minutes. Yeah,
0: that's funny. I was going to say twenty minutes too.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the way that um, that those drinks are utilized mm. traditionally as digestive aids. They're oh. not meant to be consumed like at any time throughout the day. They're meant to be a digestive aid. So. Um, And then, you know, you're going from rest and digest to like rushing into doing, that's stimulating your sympathetic nervous system. You're going into an aspect of fight or flight when your body's trying to be in rest or digest. So you're putting the kibosh on rest and digest, you're going right into fight or flight. And that is one of the ways that ama gets produced in the body. And the other thing is that the microbes in the gut produce thousands of enzymes. You know, the pancreas produces, I think, 17. Um, and so when we're talking about enzymatic activity in the small intestine and in the large intestine, we're talking about not just those pancreatic enzymes, but the ones being produced by the microbiome. And if there is a chronic state of fight or flight, if there is a chronic stress response or an intolerance to stress in someone's body, there are studies that show that that negatively impacts the functioning of the microbes in the gut. And that's huge because they manufacture many of the B vitamins, vitamin K, um many of the metabolites that, you know, we probably don't even know what they do at this point as to their their overall like systemic effects on the system. So, um and this is where I think the confusion of the body comes in when it comes to autoimmune conditions, for example, like this is a this is a habitual lifestyle um, habit or pattern that helps contribute to, to the, you know, opens the door to the body getting confused in what is friend and what is foe. And then and, and the person ending up in more of a, uh, a state of intestinal, higher intestinal permeability and potentially even um, higher uh, inflammatory markers. Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, when when we get to that point, like, so this is just like some common verbiage that's like thrown there is that, you know, like you've ate and you've got into like to this, this activity and all that, like, is there this disruption of the digestive process, but also like there's going to be a disruption of the enzymes that are produced and, you know, like how we may be able to shuttle these nutrients through the body, you know, but the narrative that's that's out there like you know something that i've heard lots over the course of my time or hear people say to me all the times that when you get into activity right after you're pulling the blood away from your digestive system you know and like it's hard it doesn't give you as much um uh like resources i guess to be able to break that down which like obviously i have my own opinion of when people say that um but weigh in on like 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 that it like when people say that, is there truth behind that? Is there no truth behind that? Is it old wives' tale? Like why do people say that like, you know, if you get into activity right after you're pulling the blood out of your digestive tract and make it harder to break it down, is that just like an oversimplification of like what people have kind of come up with and just kept on toting that same message decade after decade?
1: Well, you're bringing more blood and fluids to the region of the intestinal wall when you eat. So every time you eat, the entire body goes into a subtle uh, systemic kind of inflammatory reaction. And it's not bad. It's physiologically appropriate because when you eat, you're trying to draw more blood and fluids to the gut wall Mm -hmm. so that they're available to transport the nutrients to the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. So... You know, so then act- you
0: stimulate the muscles and then also like say like you went and you started hiking right after, and then you're packing all this blood into the legs. So then you end up having like this food and this nutrients, you know, in your in your stomach instead of having all that blood around your intestinal wall, now you're packing it down to your legs. Does it make it harder to be able to disperse those nutrients to the rest of your body? Because we just didn't allow enough time for those nutrients to be able to make their way through before we got into our physical activity.
1: I I think that that could be that could be a case, there could be a case for that, that the nutrients would just end up in the waste that leaves the body, you know, potentially. Um, And it depends, like, I mean, if you're talking about some more hardcore exercise, like if somebody's going to go lift or um, if, um, you know, they're running or if they're doing a hike with a heavy pack and they're like, oh, you know, it's a very young activity then that, yeah, it's going to draw more energy and more chi more and more blood away from the interior that's trying to do something completely opposite to that. So it's like you're going against the grain of the rhythm that your body's in at that moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, they always, <clears throat> when I was growing up, we were always told not to go swimming yeah. for at least 20 minutes or a half an hour coming, you know, talking again about that amount of time after you eat. Um because you could get a stitch in your side, and you know the fear was that somebody could potentially drown as a result of it. so um, why is that why are you getting that stitch in your side when you eat? Well, maybe if you're somebody who's already on the blood deficient side, there's just so much of it has gone to the gut that there's not enough for those accessory muscles that are used for other activities um, to get proper nourishment while you're trying to digest food so. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's feasible that, you know, what you just described could be, could be a a scenario. Yeah.
0: Do you think that there's any like long-term or like, what do you, what do you see as like the long-term impact or the health implications that if people don't allow like a proper, um, digestion process to take place you know for those nutrients be able to shuttle through the body just say I'm going to take this time out you know I'm going to relax I'm going to be connected with my food I'm going to eat it you know I'm going to have this great experience I'm going to allow you know 15-20 minutes after I'm going to have a glass of wine or a tea or a coffee or whatever that may be you know after like are we talking like potential like loss of like bone density because we're not absorbing like the micronutrients as much or like you know, like, are we going to excrete a lot of the macronutrients that, you know, we could be processing through the body? Like, what are some of the health, long-term health implications if we keep doing that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and we don't slow it down and allow the body to be able to go through that process?
1: Um, well, you know, I don't know of any studies that, I don't know of any studies that particularly could answer that question, but, um, you know, coming from an Eastern medicine perspective, the way we look at the body and we look at health is at a very subclinical level, right? So there can be signs and symptoms before a disease process actually manifests, right? So from an Eastern medicine perspective, um, and, and my guess would be from the perspective of many functional medicine docs as well, that there is a lot of weight that we put into Someone's lifestyle and what the signs and symptoms are that they're presenting with that, from an allopathic perspective, might not be given the time of day, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's it's important to recognize that because I don't want people listening to think that I'm I'm totally coming from an allopathic perspective and then you know think that this is. Western medicine that I'm talking about. I mix the both of them. So from an Eastern medicine standpoint, um, I would say that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just every, that everything that we do is important. Right. And, um, if, if you're noticing that you're feeling off, then, it really, what we need to look at nine tenths of the time is the way that we're doing things, right? A lot of times it, it might not be exactly what we're eating. Many times it is because things that people eat, they can have a reaction to. But um, a lot of times it's the way we're doing things in our lives that is either enhancing or depleting us. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, so much of the health of the body is under our control if we are willing and able to look at what our habits are and whether they're actually feeding us or depleting us. Mm. So much of the body is also out of our control, right? But why not take control of the part we know we can while we can? to experience the greatest quality of life and actively contribute to the potential for healthy longevity, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Which
0: is the interesting part because like something that I repeatedly hear and see all the time is really the narrative that if I'm not dead yet, what I'm doing must be okay. Right you know' we're like there's just there's no personal accountability to like you know listen to the subtleties because those subtleties over decades are gonna manifest, and that's how we end up with like heart disease and diabetes and depression and anxiety, and all these because we just didn't listen to our bodies and our minds along the way because we are so disconnected and just so disjointed from us as just this biological entity that we carry around all day, you know that. I, did, I just, like, I, I feel like the, the main context behind, like, everything that you keep on saying to is just the, you know, again, slowing it down, you know, being aware of your body, being present, you know, not being so distracted, taking the time out for us, you know, taking the time out to be able to respect or by listening to your body, be, be aware of what's going on because all of that stuff is going to just not only enhance what we're specifically talking about, which is, like, food and digestion, but just the overall quality of our lives in general because we're we just we don't want to listen and and until we're handed some like you know some ssris or you know like we're dying in the hospital from a heart attack or you know now we're taking like you know insulin injections or monitoring our blood glucose levels like those are the places that we've been coached to say that the only things we should be looking at but not really anything along the way you know but like that's continue what you keep coming back to is the the subtleties along the way, you know, being present, being aware and listening to all these small cues and triggers because your body's telling you a story all day, every day. Just are you willing to listen and are you willing to adapt to what that information is and make changes? Because, you know, it comes back to even like seasonal eating, you know, like what I'm eating right now, you know, in the early summer stages is not what I'm going to be eating in like the fall or the winter, nor should it be the same.
1: Right. 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 Yeah, because the, the gut microbes change based upon what they sense, what season we're going into. They shift in quantity and quality of the microbes that we need to, do, to say as we go into fall to digest more squashes and, uh, and start to get into digesting more heavier foods and fats, you know? So the body knows what to do. It's, it's that we need to get out of the way. Yeah, You know, like our minds and our wills and, um, you know, there's this like existentialist, I think, quality we have to viewing the body as, you know, the mind is predominant. And and in a sense, it is because it's harder to change the mind than it is the body nine tenths of the time. Mm -hmm. Really, if you shift what you're doing, you shift your activities, you shift the timing of those activities, um, you shift your outlook you shift what you're taking in, whether it's information or food, then your body's going to change. It's going to change to adapt to that. You're, you're sculpting it with your actions and your choices. Yeah. Um, And so that's more of like the Eastern medicine perspective. And that's why Eastern medicine is so wonderful when it comes to preventative medicine, because we're trained to recognize where an individual is stepping out of line with their, with their rhythms, with their natural rhythms, mm-hmm. and helping them to just gently nudge themselves back into it. And um, this, this thing of mind over matter, yes, that is appropriate. That's appropriate when you're, you know, working toward a goal in the gym, for example. You know, you've got it there's an, there's an aspect of that that's true. But it's not like every day, all the time, mind over matter. right? It's like, there's got to be this balance. And, you know, I think part of the silver lining of this whole, um, with the pandemic is that so many people have been brought to a place where they are realizing the importance of spaciousness in their, in their lives, spaciousness in their schedule, flex time for flexibility in the schedule, the importance of time with family, and, and presence, the importance of being present in the moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And for those of us who haven't, at least to some degree, realized the importance of being present in the moment, then we're either in a fear state or we're in some other state where we're you know, longing for the past or, or hoping for a better future or dreading what's to come next, right? So it's like we're, we're being forced to practice presence, many of us and um and so that like i said seems to be a silver lining and that is also another aspect of what's happening right now that i think is going to push people and is pushing people more into eat local buy local um, supporting communities supporting family structures
0: yeah and i i agree with you especially like your statement where where i think the first month or so, it just kind of like a lot of, a lot of the sense I got, it was just like this great vacation that most people felt like they were on. But now, like a lot of what I start to hear just like talking to people is the, I realize I need to make a change. Like I, I need to slow things down. I'm happier working less, you know, maybe getting paid less and spending more time on the things that I love because now people got bored enough of just watching a ton of netflix or sitting on their ass and like you know now that's nice outside like people are just like oh, okay you know like i do enjoy these things you know like like you know doing like a, a puzzle outside i mean a barbecue you know like all all these different things like you know going for a bike ride walking around the neighborhood you know getting out in nature going for a hike um you know all these things like i i feel the enthusiasm that people have for them now is increasing and they're realizing like like, yeah, I actually kind of like this component of my life that I've really pushed to the side because, yeah, I did need to, like, hyper-accelerate my life. I You know, I needed to be only, folks. I needed to be in, you know, just stimulating my sympathetic nervous system all day every day because it's just go, 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 grind, push, accelerate, go. Bigger house, more cars, more kids, more stuff, you know. like But now it's like, wait a minute. Like, there's this this person behind that lifestyle. And now people start to connect with respecting that person behind that lifestyle they're just like, well, you know, maybe all that stuff wasn't really worth chasing for. And I, I feel like there is a little bit more of a cultural shift behind it where you know people might start to slow things down a little bit and start you know, taking on hobbies enjoying their times and being more present and aware of like, what's going on in their life and who they are as a human being. Right. Yeah. Agree. So to, to bring us into like the, the final part of this, one thing I wanted to, to talk about is when you get through je- digestion, all of these things that we've talked about like so far that are key critical roles in this that when you talked when you talked about having um you know maybe some undigested food you know like in your stool you know leftover and you, and you visually see that now i know things that i've heard in the past you know like that you know people said or books i've read or things that have been out there is that you just either didn't chew that enough or that um, you know, like your body can't break those down. Like the stomach acid, you know, isn't strong enough to be able to break down some of these seeds, you know, or you know, some of those lines. Like, like w- when we see like undigested food in our stool, like, what are some of the reasons behind that? Like, or, or like, is there some bigger problems we should be focused on when we see that, or is it simply just we rushed too much, we didn't chew, we we didn't chew it at all, we swallowed it whole? Um, what's the narrative behind that?
1: Well, if the stool is well formed and easy to pass um there may be that you see things in it you know like if you're if you're like i know years ago andrew Weil was was prescribing swallowing a, a clove or two of garlic a day like if you're doing that you're probably going to see that right um if you're if you just if you ate corn on the cob you're going to see some of that even if your stools are well formed regular and easy to pass
2: mm
1: it's when the stools are coming out and they're loose and like pieces of actual food particles are coming off of them. Like, like you could see like a piece of grass when the dog goes to the bathroom or something like that. If your if your poop looks like that, then, you know, it, it may be that you're not chewing well, but it may be that your transit time is too fast so that, the digestive fluids and your microbes are not able to properly break down and or ferment those fibers. Mm. It could be the issue with the transit time, and it could also be an issue with the quantity and quality of the microbes necessary to ferment those things um, and or the digestive fluids necessary to break those things down more.
0: So if there was a way, um, and there may be, and I'm just unaware, so I'm um, piped on this too, if there was a way to be able to understand your transit time, whether it was either fast or slow, if yeah. you could calculate that out or measure that out, would that mean that somebody who had a slower um, transit time would be able to eat a lot more dense food and you know, get away with that, and somebody at a faster transit time should eat a lot eat more, like easier digestible foods, you know, maybe like liquid foods or vice versa, or like, how would you I would
1: say, but I would say like, if you have a slower, tr- first of all, to answer the first part of your question, to determine your transit time, you can, t- you can eat a bunch of beets and see when they come out, Yeah. right? And you know how long at least it takes for beets to get through your system. And that can be representative of many fruits and vegetables.
2: Yeah. Uh, mostly like a little
0: them. bit of a dye test is basically what you're getting.
1: Yeah. yeah. Or you could take some uh, activated charcoal and see when your stools are darkened. Yeah. So um, I would say for most people to have a healthy transit time, you need to have at least 12 hours. So usually if you eat something the next day, it should be coming out.
2: Mm.
1: If you have Hypometabolism, which is a slower transit time, then eating denser, heavier foods like grains and meat might actually slow that down even more depending upon what kind of grains they are. Okay. If you're somebody who has hypermetabolism or a faster transit time, then eating meat and heavier things might actually help to slow things down um excuse me eating um soluble fiber if you're hyper metabolic if you have a faster transit time because that helps to slow things down a little bit like the fiber that's dominant in oats or in blueberries eating um More insoluble fiber, like the things that I mentioned, that would not break down as well by the body, that need the gut microbes to ferment. um, Lots of leafy green vegetables and really fibrous vegetables that just kind of scrape the insides of the intestines. That is is more suited to someone with a slower transit time. That's why in Ayurveda we say like if somebody is primarily kapha predominant then when we look at their plate of food, it should be like three quarters vegetables.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Because they need that extra type of fiber to help push things through faster because they have more of a slower metabolism. They have... uh, not saying all kaphas have munda agni, but that tends to be the metabolic type that's associated with that with that dosha, with that mind body constitutional type. So, um, what would it so be
0: that, for pitta? Uh, what would it be for the other two? Like, um, you know, if you're like explaining that, like with kapha, like what are are they all kind of like roughly?
1: Kaphas well, tend to be more dry, yeah. so they need to have more like oily, unctuous foods. And pittas are kind of, um, they're in between, but they also tend to run more hot. So they tend to have more of a hypermetabolism mm. and be more acidic. So they need more like cooling foods, but they can eat kind of a, a bigger mix of things because their Agni, as long as it's intact, is pretty strong. It can break a lot of stuff down.
0: So like, if you had to like, cause when you say that, then like that to me would be a little bit more of like a ketogenic diet. It kind of see if it's a little bit more fatty and oily. Um, if you had to like, kind of like marry a, a fatty diet, not that I would suggest anybody do this. I'm just trying to like wrap my mind around it. Um, what, what diet could you see would fit of what you know are kind of like the top diet trends that would coincide with each of the three doshas?
1: Well, the thing is, is that I'm not an advocate of eliminating any food group. Mm-hmm. So it would be tricky, I think, for me to to do that. Um, honestly, my favorite diet is a Mediterranean-type diet,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then if you're coffee, eat a little more, um, eat a little more on the vegetable side, you know, plant-based side, which includes beans and legumes. Um, if you're Vata, eat a little more of, little, add a little more olive oil to things. Have have things that are more unctuous and heavy, and if and eat at regular meal times. And if you're Pitta, be mindful of how much spicy stuff you're using, and um, and eat to your till you feel that contentment, but not overly full. Okay. And, yeah.
0: Yeah, that that that's great. I really love the way that you phrased that. Um, and then it, just another question with like transistence. If 12 hours is preferred, if you were fast, like would it be like eight hours or 10 hours if you were slow? Well,
1: 12 hours could be fast. I mean, 12 hours could be fast if you're somebody who eats a lot of meat because meat can ferment in the body for like four days. Oh, Okay. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, that's a long time. Um, so, so if you're somebody who has a slower metabolism, you know, things that you notice slow your metabolism down more, you want to limit if you're someone who has a slower metabolism. If you're someone who has a faster metabolism, things that you notice kind of go right through you. Um, 12 hours may not be ideal, you know, for some people that might be too fast. Yeah. So the way you can determine if it's too fast really is if you do a stool analysis for yourself. So you look in the toilet and if your poop looks like a banana and it's not really sticky, if it comes out cleanly, your your transit time is good, your digestion is good. If you are more toward the side of somebody who has stools that fall apart or looser stool's, then your transit time might be a little too fast. If you're somebody who has harder stools that are more difficult to pass or they're oily and, and, and just really copious, you might have, you might have too uh, slow of a transit time. So that's a good way to tell.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, and those are the things that I think that people like, need to, to know because they're quick, simple, and easy. It's something that you can kind of look at you know, very simply, you know, like probably most of the time people are aware of that knowledge already anyway. And those are kind of like the real tools that you can use every day to be able to assess, you know, like some of our health and like, you know, like what we're doing and, you know, in relation to this, like what we're eating and how it's benefiting our body or some simple modifications that we could make just based on those visuals.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: A lot of this stuff is really simple. Like, it's really simple to listen to yourself. We're just out of the habit.
0: Well, it's because we're not told to do that. Right. Like, we're really not. Like, you know, like, it, it, it has really taken me about 30 some odd years to really develop a, a strong sense of connection with myself. And I know people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s that haven't developed that, re- that kind of connection at all. And because we're just not, we're not told it's important. Like we're really not coached or educated or like an awareness around that, like being aware of who we are because there's that carries a sense of like selfishness, you know, and mm-hmm. like, and I think like like we really need to change that as it, it, a culture to say like we do, we do need to teach our children in elementary school about like. Hey, you know, like in just really subtle ways. So they're used to hearing and they're used to seeing it. So as they grow up in our education systems that they, they become more aware, you know, and like, yeah, if you're having a hard time in school, today, you might be like this, or, you know, like, like, you know, like the look of stool, all that kind of stuff. Because if my child can in kindergarten learn about sex education at an age appropriate level, why can't they learn about stool and, you know, like health and all that kind of stuff at an age appropriate level too? Like it just it shouldn't be so one-sided that it just is like a sex education class. It should be a little bit more broad scope so they can understand a little bit more about themselves because arguably if you're a little bit more aware of who you are and respecting yourself, you probably don't need the sex education courses to be able to prevent, you know, any, you know, improper decisions that you made later on in your life. So, you know, it just, I think it really goes to show kind of like our cultural dynamics that we've created in the West and, it's nice to be able to see things trending that way, and hopefully that's the silver lining of the coronavirus and you know this whole thing is that maybe this is that final big thrust into people like respecting who they are, their bodies, and everything that makes us tick. Yeah. Yeah. Is be- there uh, is there anything else about like like food consumption, digestion, uh, like excretion, anything along those lines um, that we missed that would be valuable to add before we uh, before we end this today?
1: There's so much that could be added. I mean, to tie it back into what you were saying in the beginning about, um, you know, the antibiotics and in the, in the food supply, that is, you know, messing with the, the, just the whole, like, that in tandem with how sterile we're feeling like we need to be right now. Mm It's going to be what we're going to have to look at as an overarching theme as we move forward into the future related to our immunity. Because our immunity is strongly connected with the microbiome of the earth and the microbiome of our bodies Mm -hmm. and the interaction between those two things. And so we need to be constantly interacting with the microbiome of the earth in order to keep our microbiomes healthy and right now with all this personal sanitization and with all the you know generalized sanitization like in the food supply and in and now when everywhere we're going to go indoors that's not optimal for us on some level either like right now we're in crisis mode this is an acute thing but once we get into more of a chronic mode we're going to have to really look at how those things antimicrobials are affecting us on the level of our immunity and could potentially be weakening us in the future to other pathogens yeah Uh, And, 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 and starting now to have a consciousness of that, being mindful of that, getting that extra outdoor time, getting out in nature, breathing deep, getting the energy of the trees and the metabolites from the microbes that come off of the trees and out of the ground into our systems is going to be really, really helpful, helpful to supplement what we're having to do right now you know, indoors to to keep everybody safe at the moment. Um, And then moving forward, looking at how we can build our immunity in tandem with our microbes, which are half of who we are and what we are and which train our immune system and which I have no doubt there'll be studies coming out on the microbiome and how it's related to COVID outcomes and things like that. Um, How those... How important the microbiome is in terms of the immune system and, and alternative ways of living so that we can nourish our microbes, our good microbes, our, our ones that are beneficial and, and help us thrive, while at the same time minimizing our exposure to um, more pathogenic or potentially harmful ones.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and it's key because you know, like we are heavily sanitizing like our bodies. But like our lives do, and I think the the component that a lot of people are missing in that equation as well, which was a problem about a month and a half, maybe two months ago. Now we um, the CDC of BC is seeing a huge spike of um, like respiratory conditions caused by like the inhalation of like all these cleaning products, so or cleaning, which like that is gonna massively affect like you know like and disturb like everything that's going on in our lungs you know, which is going to disperse through the rest of our, our body as well, right? And you're know, like, those are really alarming to me when her because I don't think a lot of people understand the massive health implications, not only just the damage to your lungs, but the health implications that, you know, spur from that, because like, this is our entry point into like, you know, infusing any of those things, like, you know, into our blood and into yeah. circulating through our body. And it was actually really scary for me to be able to, to read that, because I don't think a lot of people are conscious of that, but you'd, You'd walk around and you can just, you can smell the sanitizers in the air when you go to any public space. And it's like, it's pretty heavy.
1: It is pretty heavy. I think about it every time I have to clean, (laughs) you know, and I wear a mask when I'm cleaning too, you know, and that's good because hopefully it's helping to filter some of that stuff out. But they did a study a few months ago that came out that said that women, I can't remember the exact stats. But it was generally speaking, it was women who have a job as a cleaner, or women who stay at home and they clean their homes on a regular basis, oh. have the lung damage of someone who smoked their whole lives. So, wow. oh yeah, from wow. breathing in like the the, you know, the inhaled chemicals, so um so things yeah. were
0: just so unaware of right you know just that affects coping. the
1: microbiome in the lungs too yeah it interacts with the with the microbiome in other parts of the body so
0: yeah wow incredible
1: i know well,
0: <laughs> yeah well yeah, again it's one of those things where like these these podcasts between you and i get in for hours because like that's like oh that I <laughs> not like but i want to have that conversation you know maybe next time we talk about um you know, like how like through the air we breathe and things that like, you know, we breathe in the effects on the lungs and how that affects like the rest of the body, because I've I've never really heard that narrative ever explained or talked about before. And the impacts that we can have that are environmental and, you know, like situations like that, you know, like and for women, you know, especially I think it's something really key for them to be able to take into consideration. So um, yeah, we should chat about that next time. All
1: right, that sounds good.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for, uh, and I know you're in the States, but happy Canada Day anyway. Fourth of July is coming up. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Have a wonderful day.
1: All right. You too.